over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and it's my delight, my treasure to have my friend, my brother, Dr. Charles Bayless. Dr. Bayless and I were actually in seminary together a hundred years ago. You were were young then. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Dr. Bayless has been on faculty at the Dallas Theological Seminary since 1994. He's presently a professor of Bible exposition. Dr. Bayless specializes in the literary study, in other words, the plot of the biblical story. He is the president and CEO of Biblical Story, Inc., and we'll have the link to that in the show notes below, but it's biblicalstory.org. With the attempt to educate students, pastors, professors, homeschool students, missionaries, and others, including Bible studies, churches, and personal study, to know the biblical story. His book, The Serpent and the Woman, moves through the biblical plot revealing both the emotion of the familiar scenes and characters of the Bible to show the reader the single plan of God. Dr. Billis got his Bachelor of Electrical Engineering. That explains a lot. You're an engineer. I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) From the University of Michigan and a Master of Business Administration from Eastern Michigan University. He then got his Master's of Theology, THM, at Dallas Seminary. We graduated the same year, 85. Then he pursued his doctorate of theology in 1989. He's made many trips to Israel, Turkey, Greece, and even Rome. He's married with three adult children, three grandchildren, and it's great to have you on the broadcast. Thanks again, Charlie. Well, good to be here, Michael, and to see you again. Let's jump into these uh, letters with 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we'll talk about 1st John in this program, and then we'll wrap up talking about 2nd, 3rd. Now, before we begin, I'm going to ask you a setup question. Uh, You and I had Dr. Uh, Dwight Pentecost, who wrote the little book called The Joy of Fellowship, and then we also had to read a book by Robert Law called The Tests of of Faith or Test of Life, I forget now. And those paint the perhaps two ways people tend to look at this book. Is it about the joy of fellowship or is it about the test of a true faith? So, so start us out clearing that up once and for all. <laughs> well, I think the thing I'd like to start with is the issue of, you know, what is the core thread that runs through this book? What is the real issue? And, uh, if I could just kind of erase the board for a second okay. and set it up, I, I do things with three circles. Okay. And at the top circle is God. The middle circle, as you come down, is Jesus. And then the bottom circle is the believer. And so the question of First John is who has access to the Father? Who has the eternal life? that is this character of the Father. And John's answer is only those who believe 
in Jesus as the Christ. So his point throughout this epistle is to separate claimants of being in that family of the child of God. Let me give you an illustration. Um, we've all heard the song, you know, we are the world, we are the children, you know, we're all children of God, kumbaya, all those kinds of things. And this particularly is what John is going for. And, and in John 5, uh, you know, uh, 13, which we all know, these things I've written to you who believe. So he's writing to believers uh, in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Great passage. And this eternal life is the character of the Father revealed through the Son to believers. Okay. Now, what's happening is, in order to clarify this a little bit, let's take a look at who is the antagonist. Who is it that John's fighting here? And he's fighting this antagonist. It's over in uh, chapter 2, where he uh, talks about, you know, there's many antichrists in the world. Antichrist is coming. And he says, uh, verse 22 of chapter 2, who is the liar but the one that denies that Jesus is the Christ? Mm -hmm. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And look at verse 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. So the two divisions are based on one, trust in the Son, and that gets you to the Father. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. So what John is primarily doing is just separating all the claimants to this position of having access to the Father, which we run into all the time in the world today. You know, the old, we worship all one God and that kind of thing. Anyway, so that's the, the basic element of uh, what I see the book of First John presenting. One of the things I try to teach Dr. Bess when I'm preaching these messages is for people to look at repetition and big themes and, you know, don't, don't miss the, the forest for the trees kind of thing. You and I were trained to look at the forest and the, some 46 times again, depending on your English translation you might use. He talks about sin more than many of the uh, epistles do. I think 26 sometimes written and writing is very important to John. I've written these things. I'm writing these things and the authority of that behind it. So I appreciate your high theme uh, God, the Spirit, uh, the, the Son, and, and the believer. But these themes are really strong in the book. Uh, this fellowship with us, one to four, I've often said, I would love to start a church from scratch and have First John 1, one to four be the philosophy of ministry. That we, we had him, we saw him, we held him, we, we, we heard, we saw, we looked, we touched, and we give him to you. Uh, what a beautiful intro he gives. But then he talks about a very interesting verse three to me. What we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. You'd think he'd say Jesus first, us, and that you indeed fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So give us give us your insights into that introduction. And again, you can jump into any of my comments about fellowship and these, these reoccurring high-level terms. All right. <laughs> Let me... Um, continue down the road. Okay. Uh, so uh, what, what John is doing in these first four verses, you know, it's all the we's and we have touched and we have heard. And so the we's there are the apostles. Yes. And so what John is doing in this epistle, it, it, and to just put it right up front, is an apostolic defense. Yes. Um, and he's saying, and, and so what he's doing is he's saying, we, the apostles, 
our eyewitness testimony to uh, Jesus, the resurrection, the crucifixion, and also as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. So he's pointing out that you, that is the uh, audience, and you know, the, um, that you, the pronoun for the audience, may have fellowship with the apostles. Now, we kind of think that's a little bit strange, and the apostles then, of course, have fellowship with the Father and the Son. But what John's saying is you cannot find out about Jesus unless you listen to me. I saw, I'm an eyewitness testimony. And this is where we get the apostolic teachings by which, and then we get back to the church, this is the foundation of the church, is the apostolic teaching. Uh, You know, it's not psychology. You don't come to Dr. Bayless for his philosophy of life. I tell people, you want my philosophy of life? Take me to lunch. And when you're done, you'll wish you had the hour back and your money back. Um, It's the apostolic teaching, which is about Jesus. And that's what he's saying here is um, you have to listen to the apostles in order to uh, get this eyewitness testimony. And and so this is, in essence, throughout the book, just for instance, over in uh, 1 John chapter 4, he says, look at verse 6, after he contrasts the false teachers, he says, we, that is the apostles, are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Because he's saying we have the revelation, we have the apostolic uh, doctrine. And so, if I could just go on one other thing, on the separation in this epistle, the, the warring factions here are John as an apostle. And he said, you need to listen to me as opposed to listen to the false teachers who he describes, I already mentioned the Antichrist, but he describes in chapter four, right at the start there, he says, you need to confess that Jesus is the one coming in the flesh. And if he does not confess this, he's a false teacher. And so John's purpose in this epistle is to identify that the truth comes from the apostles the falsity comes from these false teachers who are Good. denying Jesus as the Christ. Good. And so this, the, this is why the we's flow throughout the book, is that he's trying to say, look, we, as you said, first four verses. And so this is the foundation of the body. And this is where we encourage one another. Uh, ultimately, we get to the assembly and the importance of the assembly of the body to encourage one another in the love of brethren. But um, anyway, I wander on. Go ahead. No, that's good. That's good. So, so talk to me a little bit about the progression of heard, seen, looked, touch, seen, proclaim, manifest, seen, heard. What's he doing there, Dr. Bayless? Well, as I mentioned, um, just authenticating the message, authenticating his apostleship, authenticating his apostleship, that he's where you have to come. Okay. Um, uh, Let me interrupt you. We we talk about the signs of an apostle chosen by Christ, Work the works of Christ with him. Paul is forever defending his apostleship. Yes. The least yes. of it, because he was chosen in a different way. He worked the works in a different way. He wasn't with him in the same way. But John was, right? That's exactly right. Okay, before That's we... Exact- okay, is this his half-brother? John? Yes. No. Okay, because that, that's <laughs> we have a lot of Johns in the New Testament. Yeah, no, not that I know. And people of. need to know that it's not his half brother. It's not that John, right? <laughs> I had never been asked that question. Is before, that right? So, yeah. Well, no. maybe it was just me. 
All right, let's continue then. So in verses 1 to 4, he's setting this whole thing up, apostolic authority. You need to pay attention to what the apostolic authority uh, who was it, Lightfoot, that he used that title, the apostolic teaching of the church? It was such a great title, lost on people today, what he's saying. But these were the men God chose to establish his church and pay attention to them because they have unique authority. In verse 4, then he says this, so that, which I'm going to say is a purpose clause. You can correct me if I'm wrong. So that our joy may be made complete. And if I understand, Charles, what he's saying there is, you need to embrace Christ, embrace our teaching, understand what we're saying, and that will make us joyful. Exactly. Exactly okay. right. Again, this apostles passing on to you. And it's what's happening here is this is the family of God, the children of God. And so John is rejoicing over the family. And we'll see this over in uh, chapter two. He actually uses the term rejoice as opposed to the way it's translated as greeting. So that there's a rejoicing in this family when people continue to continue the trust in Jesus. Okay. So now we have in these first, still, still in chapter one, these first, the next five verses, six verses, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to him, God is light. What's going on contextually that he talks about light? Okay. Let me, um, let me go back. Okay. Uh, <laughs> one of the questions that you uh, sent me in preface was where does this book fit in the biblical context that is mentioned you know, my focus is the biblical story and where everything okay. fits in and how the plot moves along. And what John is doing, particularly in chapters one through three, is going back primarily to Genesis one to four. Uh, he also includes Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, but it's primarily Genesis one to four. And if you walk through chapters one through three, you'll see that he uses light darkness. He talks about the old commandment, and the new commandment. Uh, over in 2.15, he says, uh, you know, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. That's Eve. Yep. Commentators recognize that all the time. Then you heard Antichrist is coming. That's the seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. Seed of the serpent is the Antichrist. Back in Genesis 3.15, from when God gave that promise, he gave the promise of Messiah, uh, the seed of the woman. And of course, the seed of the serpent was opposing Messiah. And then uh, if you go on, you'll see verse uh, 26, these things I've written you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And then you'll go into chapter three. I won't go into the details, uh, but he's really walking through the Garden of Eden and then comes to Christ, but ultimately gets down to Cain and Abel in 312. So he's walking through Genesis 1 to 4. Now, the reason he's doing that it's because these antagonists are coming in and saying, no, you don't need Jesus. You can get to the Father through keeping the law. I think they're Jewish. Through keeping of the law, and that's fine. You don't need Jesus. And those are the people that are denying that Jesus is a Christ. But John says, wait a minute, from the beginning, or you have heard. So he's going back to the Old Testament saying, look, this is the way it's always been. In Genesis 3.15, he prophesied these antichrists would oppose his Messiah. So he goes back there, and then, now here, here's where you come in, the application. And, and this love that is going to come through Messiah and his death on the cross is going to be imputed to the believer. And so this is going to be the love of brother that's given to you. And that's in Cain and Abel. So, uh, so you see the love that God had for us, he gives to us. 
And that is the love of brother. So now you come within mm. this assembly and why we gather and why we care for our brother as a family. You, you uh, bring in imputation, and uh, it'd be a good sidebar for us to talk a little bit about that. Of course, it's a big part of Pauline theology, imputation of righteousness. Give us uh, Dr. Bayless's thumbnail explanation for folks maybe that aren't familiar with the term imputation. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this. And, uh, and what's required for entry into the kingdom, or really for fellowship with God, is that you have his righteous character. And, and uh, it, in the Sermon on the Mount makes it clear that if you've got one sin, you, you're not there. You're, you're out. And so you need the perfection of God's righteous character. Sometimes we think, well, I'm pretty good, so you know I'll get in or something like that. And God says, no, pretty good is not my character. So God, from the beginning, sent his Messiah, perfectly righteous, second person of the Trinity, to die and then impute, the words account. He's going to put his righteousness on my account. So therefore, I have a new life. He forgives sins, the old character, and he gives me a new life. Now, that new life then is given to me, and I mentioned that's the love of God, which then should be exhibited in love of brother. And he gives me this new life, so therefore makes me perfect. Now, you know, you look at me and you say, well, Doc, I know you're not perfect. I've watched you for five minutes. I know you're not perfect. <laughs> that's true. But one day I'll die and that Adamic character will go with it, and I will be left with the life mm. of Jesus. Now, uh, this is interesting because I, I think we miss this. I think we miss this as, as what God has done to us. I always say God has made us different. He hasn't made us better. He's made us different. I mean, obviously, we're better than the Adamic character, but he's made us different. He's made us perfect. He's made us like Christ. And, and this is simply unbelievably amazing. In uh, 2 Peter 1, 4, it says he's made us partakers of the divine nature. nature. I say, think about that for a second. See, that's different. And so I walk through this world because God has given me his love, which I exhibit towards the brother. And so this is the essence of imputation is he puts on my account. I remember what I want to say. I slip for a second. If you read the Dallas Seminary doctrinal statement, I always tell people I read it every night before I go to bed. Um, <laughs> it says in there, and I love this. It says, when God looks at me, he sees his son. I'm going, boy, if that doesn't help you sleep at night, I've got nothing mm, for you. Mm. That's just amazing. Yeah. And that's what John is trying to convince people of who believe that you're different. You're uniquely in this child of uh, a God family. You know, and I, I think it's hard for people, and I, I talk often about experiential Christianity, that it seems in the last decade or so, we've got a horizontal view of I, me, my Christianity, my passion, my dreams, my desire, what Jesus does for me. Yes. We've moved yes. from a worship and glorification of Christ, and I'm a servant, I'm submissive, I need to live as a thank you back to him for his righteousness that he imputed to me. He forgave Absolutely. me of all my sins. I can never get over that. I was I was sharing, I think, last Sunday in a sermon. Um, if you go back, yeah, because it was on Second Peter, if you go back and think about the forgiveness of sins that he refers to, he says that they drift off because they forgot what they were forgiven of, basically. And it doesn't take a, a Christian more than about 20 seconds. 
if you start thinking about how you lived, how sinful you were before Christ saved you, and you're just crushed. I talk about a good shame, a good guilt is remembering that. And then praise God, he forgives you. And as you said so well, he's imputed that righteousness. And I think, well, we're, we're, we're way off into the application of this, but I mean, have you seen this effectively done in, in your spheres, in your churches? Are we doing a good job helping people see? He sees Christ in you. He doesn't see sinful old sinner man Michael easily. He sees what Jesus did. And is that lost on our, that's a crazy question, but is that lost on our teaching these days? <laughs> I'll, I'll forward that one to you. You're, <laughs> you're, uh, you're in leadership like that and have to deal with, this all the time. Well, I, to some degree, yes, and to some degree, no. Okay. Um, I that's mean, a, that's it, a good it, seminary answer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it that's depends. Right. I dodged. It depends. I dodged it entirely. <laughs> and, you know, I was watching one of your uh, episodes to see uh, how they were like, and one of them just flipped the question back. You said, "Well, what do you think?" And I thought that's a that's a good one. <laughs> um, uh, this essence of it is uh, to walk in the love of God that he's given us, uh, we should be walking uh, two feet off the ground. Mm. And then, of course, it's ex- it should be exhibited because John 3, 16, God loved the world. I mean, we came to, you know, he, he drew us to him as sinners, as depraved sinners. And so we want to spread that message so that others can come to this. And then, of course, within the body. And I think that the love of God is expressed. And I think John says this with this love that you have for the brother, for the body. You know, today uh, we run into this thing all over. I'm sure you've run into it. We were all on Zoom. And now the bodies are trying to gather together again. And I've got a Sunday school class and I'm trying to get everybody back. But there's a sense in in which they aren't. And I'm going, no, the the assembly to to look at your brother in the eye and encourage him in Christ and those kinds of things. Very important. And I think that's where, I think that's where John says, this Christ is exhibited through you is his mercy that flows out to the brother. And of course, again, in evangelism and our care for the lost. Well, this is, this is fun, but let me get back to our text at hand. Let's go to chapter two of first John, my little children, uh, endearing term. Uh, they would not hear that condescending, correct? No, not, not at all. That's rejoicing that you're yeah. in the family of God. Yeah. Yes. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Here we go. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. And I love that some Bibles still use the divine pronoun and the divine adjectives, and they capitalize advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but for all, also for those of the whole world. So here we get into limited atonement, universal, so forth and so on, or potentially. Help me out here. Help me out here. I'm writing these things so you won't sin. And if you sin, you have an advocate. Okay, the question is, and, and we kind of skipped over this in the light and darkness theme, but what he's doing here is he's talking about the quality of the character of God here, that he is perfect. He is uniquely perfect. And so the question is, is how do you have this relationship with God? Well, in chapter one, he says, well, we, we agree with God about our sins, and he forgives our sins through Jesus, his son. Now, the question is, okay, what happens when I sin? 
And he says, well, you now, no, by the way, notice the pronouns here because <laughs> they shift all the way through the verse. Yes. I am right, John, writing these things that you, the reader, may not sin. And if anyone sins, we, now that's the apostles, have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I'm going to stop there because, you know, the first question is, wait a minute, don't I have an advocate? Yes, yes, relax. <laughs> you do. But what John is saying, see, we, the apostles, have an advocate. You go over to the Antichrist. They got nothing. They're based on their works to get to get to God, and it's not going to work. But we, so you come to me, and you get the revelation of an advocate, which, of course, he clarifies and says that's the propitiation for our sins. Now, you know, the propitiation was when they sprinkled the blood on the, on the mercy seat, which appeased the wrath of God. Unbelievable. I know. This is so exciting. Unbelievable, says, yes. So, so the revelation of the apostolic teaching tells you about Jesus, and you're free from the wrath. And so when you sin, you know, as I pray that you don't. Yeah, we don't want right. to miss that. We don't want to miss that at all. God is holy. And the love of brother is the last of the commandments. And we want to be sure that we are a walking in holiness. But the, the point is here, again, is they don't have it. We have it. So stick with the revelation. Anyway. Uh, but it is, yeah, it's it's as you say, we have forgiveness of sins. And the beautiful thing is, yeah, don't sin. But when you do, we have an advocate, a propitiatory sacrifice. Let's talk about this, not only ours, and if I'm following your logic, then he's refer referencing the apostle group there, not only ours, but also the whole world. So we would say, I would say, uh, that his sacrifice is sufficient for all. A absolutely. That is John 3.16. We all know it. They died for the whole world. So yes, uh, unlimited expression of the atonement. I would agree entirely. Why do our um, Reformed friends, why, why do they tenaciously hold to the limited side of this equation? <laughs> I, I know, the, the, and I have great friends who are reform brothers. Oh, absolutely! I, I think sure. some of them secretly think I'm a heretic, but that's okay. Sometimes I think I'm a heretic, but I, I wonder. You know, I remember the phrase that his blood was wasted, and I yeah. go, "Well, that's not anywhere in the scripture." Emotionally, that pulls at us, going, "Well, that'd be terrible if Christ's blood was wasted." But you could argue it was wasted on sinners, <laughs> it was wasted on you and me. So I just find it striking that there's such a tenacity to that limited atonement teaching. Yeah, I can't, uh, you know, it's like trying to get into somebody's reasoning. And I, you know, there's probably multiple reasonings for this. I, I guess I would just say it's the emphasis on probably sovereignty, you know, that God would not direct anything that did not become totally effective or received. Mm. But you know that's uh, that's just my guess. I'm I'm uh, okay. I'm not the expert. I'll lean to you on that one. Well, and I, I try to in a collegial way because again, I have great respect for you know our reform friends and our reform foundations. We often say we are soteriologically reformed down the line, but then when we move from some of that, we got to kind of scratch our head. You know. That's a different, I'll get Dr. Han on and he'll clear all that up for us, right? Yeah, well, I'm big on sovereignty, so <laughs> I don't, I so, want to leave less than that. There but, we uh, go. Let, let's move on in chapter two then. Um, by this, we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we will know that we are in him. So I remember, and I could be wrong, uh, Robert Law was the one that referenced the idea of characteristic sins. And I teased you in the first part of that, and you didn't want to answer that question. That's okay. I forgive you. But when we differentiate this test of faith and we talk about characteristic sin, it sounds like John is saying, if you know Christ, you won't continue sinning. Correct me where I'm off here, Dr. Bayless. Okay. Well, let me shift again. Okay. Artful Dodger, (laughs) Dr. Bayless. That's what I'm going to start naming you. (laughs) Well, let me shift back to this basic element of antagonist protagonist. Now, the antagonist uh, is one who thinks you can get to God through keeping of the law or some other good works. John is saying, no, it's strictly through trust in Christ, imputation, which will give you the love of brother. Okay, so those are the two sides. Now, what I do in class is I read this and I say, okay, how many of you are keeping the commandments? Well, you know what you get. <laughs> you know, you get very hesitation. You know? Sure. You know, it's the old ask your wife, you know, anybody raise your hand, you just ask your wife. Or, or husband. But anyway, you know, what, what we do here is, and I, and I read, and they'll say, well, you, you know, it says, you know, if you're a believer, you're going to be keeping the commandments. So what we say is, well, okay, characteristic of the commandments, or, or you know, you're, you're, you're keeping them better than you used to, or I'm certainly keeping them better than the next guy. And I'm going, well, that's how the Pharisees looked at uh, yeah. keeping the commandments. The only thing that I see in keeping the commandments, there's two standards. One's 100%. You know, that's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. If you lose the least of these, okay, it's 100%. Jesus keeps and teaches everybody else is out. There's only one standard, and that's 100%. So what we do here is we change that standard so that we can get in by the reading of this seemingly reading of this text. Now, what happens is, again, John is going back to the Old Testament, and, and this is where I think we don't see it. When John talks about knowing God, this gets into the word gnosko and his synonym, Weda, in uh, in 1 John. And he uses them almost synonymously. It's about 55, 45. And this goes back. He's actually utilizing Jeremiah 31, 34. He quotes Jeremiah 31 over in uh, John uh, 2.27, you have no need for anyone to teach you, and that's out of Jeremiah 31.34. And what he does when he goes back to Jeremiah 31.34— Hang on, hang on, hang on. I hadn't seen this before. So you're saying that's a New Covenant reference. That's a New Covenant reference. Interesting. And if you go back there, he says, you didn't keep the Old Covenant, so I'm giving you the New Covenant where the law is written on your heart— and you have no need for anyone to teach you, for you will all know me from the great, you know, and, and so he I goes on, he uses that word. Now, what's interesting is we get into this Weda Gnosko. Okay, tell our folks what Oida and Gnosko mean. Okay, <laughs> thank you. You're not talking you. to Dallas Seminary geeks, you're talking to <laughs> hacks like me, come on. No, that's okay, I get off in my, in my own world here, you know, and it sounds good to me, and, you know. Danger, so Will Robinson, you. danger. Yeah. Thank you for stopping me. <laughs> Uh, the word gnosko is the word uh, to know, and so also is weda, to know. Now, John, in his book, uh, uses it somewhat interchangeably, 5545. This, in some view, is why people uh, import Gnosticism into the book is because of his use of gnosko. I don't see that, but uh, anyway, 
John uses them interchangeably. Now, if you go back to Jeremiah 31, let me just go back there. I, you so know, I it's funny it. you bring this up. I tell our folks all the time, you've got to know the Abrahamic covenant. You've got to know the, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and you've got to know the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Absolutely. Because if, if you miss those three hinge points, you get in the weeds. Ab absolutely. Now, when he goes back there, now notice Jeremiah, of course, is a pre-exilic prophet. And so what he's saying, the days are coming. In other words, they aren't in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah is not experiencing this. And he says, they broke the old covenant. He says, but the days are coming when I will give them a new covenant. This is uh, in, uh, in verse uh, 31 and 32. So we're in chapter 31, 31 and 32 of Jeremiah. And then he says in verse 33, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write them. What he's saying is the law that was out there externally and the Adamic nature tried to keep it and couldn't. He said, I'm going to take that law, which is the character of God. It's the revelation of God's character. And he says, I'm going to make it your character. Now, we all know about character, right? Everything you do is a result of your character. I tell people, your character leaks out of you. Whether you like it so or you not. Want to be sure, yeah, you want to be sure you're going to be straight and true with people because they can see it. It'll leak out somewhere. Your arrogance, your pride, something. And, and we all have uh, that, that it, thing to deal with. And so he says, I'm going to make the law, my character, my righteous character, yours. And he says, and therefore, see, then you will keep it. And that's the new life that we have. And then in verse 34, he says, they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, know the Lord. There it is. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And here's the, another big one. I will forgive their iniquity. Mm. So here we have forgiveness of sins under the Adamic nature. And then we have the new life, which is the character of God. Now, this is important. I always tell them, I say, you inherited a character from Adam. Actually, Adam got it from Satan. And I always say, can, can the Adamic character do any good thing? The answer is no. It's from Satan. Can this new character that comes from Christ, that comes from God, can God do anything evil? Absolutely no. Well, that's the character you inherited. And this is what we're going to see over in John 3, where he says, the one who was born of God cannot sin. He's not talking about habitual sin. He's saying that character, born of God, see, as opposed to born of Satan, cannot sin. See, I go to, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a worrier about everything, but I'll tell you that verse makes me sleep well. Because even though I am a sinner and I see it all the time, it's the Adamic nature, but it's been forgiven. But when he looks at me, he sees his son. He sees that character of his son. But anyway, back to the word no here. He says, they shall all know me. Now, what's interesting in Jeremiah 31, 34, John interchanges Weda and Gnosko. Guess what Jeremiah does in the, in the Septuagint? There's two uses of no there. Both of them in the Hebrew are the same word, yada. But in the Greek, it's Weda and Gnosko. Interesting. interesting. I'm going, wow. Yeah, yeah. This is almost too much that John is back there. And the net essence is, see, in the old covenant, they didn't know the Lord. Now, by, let me explain this. They looked at the sacrifices. They looked at the temple. They looked at the services. They looked at the signs. They looked at the symbols to indicate God, but it wasn't God. 
I mean, it was just symbols of God. Now that Jesus has come and we have his life in us, we now know God. It's, it's uh, uh, John chapter 17. I think it's verse two or three. You know, this is eternal life that you know the Father. And the Son. We know him. And uh, so anyway, so that's what he's doing there. So he's saying, you know, because you keep the commandments, thus his point is Jeremiah 31, 34. Yes, I do keep the commandments because I, uh, Christ keeps them and then imputes that to me. Now, let me just give you one little proof text here. If you go over to 323, you'll see that. First John 323, this is his commandment. Okay, that's the Father's commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. See, so there it is. If, if, if you don't see it over there at Jeremiah 31, 34, he's saying the Father's commandment from the beginning, uh, Genesis 3, 15, hmm. is to trust in the Son. And that's always uh, the way it's been. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Excellent. It's always that, trust in the Son. All right, we must we must forge on, and I know I'm missing lots of good questions and things that you want to talk about. Let's go. You mentioned it earlier, Doctor Bayless, about chapter two, verses fifteen through seventeen, which I reference all the time. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. You already made the connection to the garden sequence there. It's, it's a beautiful reminder of the temptation. I, I boil it down to we want to be like God. And Absolutely. I, I, I could be like God. I mean, we, we miss all the provisions he's made for us. We miss all the blessings. We don't want to trust him. I want to be like him. So the consequence of that will take Christ coming to resolve. But when you read that passage and you tie it back to Genesis, let's go to the context. What is John's argument here? Why is he bringing this up, Dr. Bayless? Again, back to the false teachers okay. who come from Satan and who have his philosophy, which is anti-Messiah. And so John is saying, continue to trust in the revelation of God. That's what Eve went away from. She listened to Satan instead of the revelation of God. And he says, so you want to listen to the revelation, which is obviously by faith in the apostolic teaching, as opposed to having your hope in this world and its philosophies and every, everything else. And that's, I think that's simply it. It really goes throughout the scriptures. You know, the Pharisees had their hopes in money and riches and fame and everything else. And Jesus looked at him and said, unless you believe I am, you'll die in your sins. It's always this trust in Messiah. And if I could jump into a little eschatology here, <laughs> the bodily resurrection, the kingdom, that's where we're going to see everything. Let's, can we apply this some for folks? And can we talk about how we love the world? Or are you, oh, saying, or are you saying this is so definitive to the Antichrist teaching? Or, or is there application here for, do I love my car, my house, my wife, my children, my family more than? Absolutely. No, I, I, you know, the, the two contrasts are stark in the sense of belief, unbelief. But, but we as believers face this lure all the time. It's, it's, it's in our 
Adamic character that's still in us. And uh, yes, um, years ago, I was uh, flying uh, to Houston to teach a class, and I remember reading, it's over in Luke 14, and it's about the people Jesus invites them to the feast, or the man invites them to the feast, and they all have excuses, you know, my I got my wife, I've got my field, I've got this, I've got to do that. And I remember reading that, and it was, of course, it's Jesus inviting them to the kingdom, and everybody's got something else. else and, I, and, I, and I said to myself, is my kingdom here? Mm. If Jesus stood here and invited my kingdom, I'd say, no, that's not the kingdom, it's my stuff. And so, yeah, we identify with our careers, we identify with everything, and the text says, you identify with Jesus, he's everything. So yes, that's a sanctificational property that we always more and more want to move towards Jesus is everything. I just find it striking, and you've already said this, uh, but I just find it striking how from the fall of man to where we are in First John, almost concluding this book the way it's arranged, it's the same issue. We want to be like God. We want to live our way. We want our sin. I, I often say we try to sanctify our sin. We try to justify our identity. Absolutely. The language we use a lot today, I identify as X. Uh, this, this is how I was made. This is my right. And it's heartbreaking on the one hand, uh, and it's it's strident to call it out and say, you know, that's not right. And if you love God and he loves you, then you respond to him, not your personal assessment of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Do you remember when, um, um, oh, his name escapes me, the, the, the one-line preacher, goodness, he came and talked to Chafer Chapel in his 90s. Vance Havner. Do you remember when oh, Vance yeah. Havner spoke yeah. in chapel? And that would have been mid-80s. And his head barely was o- above the pulpit. He was a little slightly. And, of course, Dr. Walver was 6'5", you know, and is towering. And he preached this great message full of one-liners. And I remember some of them. You know, today's civilization reminds me very much of an ape playing with a blowtorch in a room full of dynamite. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. He was just he was a character. But after he preached, and it was mostly men in those days in, in that particular seminary class, and he finished the sermon and the chapel message, and he, he turned, and he whispered to Dr. Walver, and Walver shook his head yes, and he came back to the pulpit, and he had these big trifocals, I can still see him, they were massive trifocals, and his eyes looked huge because of the magnification of the lenses, and he said, I, I, I've never done this before, but I feel moved to ask you men to pray for me that I will not die a fool. Wow. And I was sitting there with two of my close buddies, and we just, our mouth dropped and going, you're that old, and you're that feeble, and you're that frail. You're still tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and Absolutely, the yeah. of life. Whew. Sobering. Sobering. And, and that is that is an emphasis, to, you know, just to put a period to what you're saying. That is an emphasis on First John, to abide, to continue to abide, to continue to be faithful. That's huge. Okay, Dr. Bayless, as you look back on this letter of John, the apostolic authority, explaining what it means to be in fellowship with the teachings of the apostles and with the personal work of Christ, how, how do you unfold the rest of the letter for us? Well, just in summary, in chapter three, the first part is he's really talking about the new life there when he says you cannot, the one who is born of God is supposed to being born of Satan. 
uh, cannot sin. He's talking about this new life. So it's not that we have one character that goes back and forth. We have the old character has been paid for. And then, of course, the new life, which is the love of God, love of brother. And he goes through that in chapter three. Now he goes to Cain and Abel to illustrate this. And uh, Cain, of course, was a rejecter of God. And Abel, of course, was a truster in the Messiah to come through his sacrifice. And so they were the first ones to illustrate, really, Genesis 3.15, trust in Messiah. And then, of course, Cain killed his brother because Cain was an unbeliever. He didn't like Abel because Abel was a believer. Abel was forgiven. Very similar, by the way, the lost son and the elder son. Mm -hmm. Very similar to that. The elder son hates the father and hates, hates the brother because he's been forgiven. And so this is the essence of what's going on in chapter three. Now, at the end of chapter three, he pours out the love of brother. In other words, the love that you have been given. Let me let me go to three one. A, a kind of a translation. It's a little foggy. See how great a love the Father hath bestowed on us. Three one. I would say bestowed. How many use that word? Right. Uh, no, I never use it. It's given. He gave us his love which is the love of brother. He died for the brother. See, so we have that love. And so he says, so you have it in you. So, you know, express this love. And, and this is how we know you're a believer because you have this love. You love brothers as opposed to the Antichrist who hates you guys. Now in chapter four, again, no, then wait, he's let, let me back. ask you, because he, he repeats this abide and practice all through yes. chapter three. So again, help me, everyone who practices sin, also practices lawlessness, um, and, and it almost sounds like, and this is where some of our friends would say, if you are practicing sin, characteristically living in sin, you're not a Christian. Well, I, I'm not saying that um, <laughs> that lifestyle and, and exhibiting this love of brother is it, it, it's absolutely important. Um, I disagree, though, with that translation. Uh, practicing is not in the text, okay? That is an interpretation. The word there is poieo, and it means uh, do or do, make. Uh, doing. Okay, so uh, if you go to 3.9, uh, no one is born of God, practices sin, it's, it's does sin. So there's no practices in there. Now, uh, I've written on this, and other people have written on this, and the issue uh, really is, in fact, if you go over in the Net Bible and see the explanation there, they will explain this, and present tenses do not denote continuity by themselves. For instance, um, I stand, you know, I stand for the national anthem. Well, that's a short little bit. On the other hand, I might stand for some principles and that's continual. So present tenses by themselves, they need to have context to affirm a continuation. And most admit this context for continuation isn't there. And so really it's kind of our, our theology that places it there if you hold that. And so it's, and I'm talking about the new life here. I think he's talking about the new life. He says, does not sin. Because the point is, and I go back to the Sermon on the Mount, if you have sinned, you're not getting into the kingdom. So the question is between the antagonist and John is how do you get rid of your sin? Well, you get it forgiven, and then he gives you a new life, which does not sin. So I don't agree with the insertion of practice there. I think just the normal reading of does not sin is the way that it should be read. So, I'll, now, okay, okay, let me push ahead. let me push you a little bit. Sure. Uh, and I, I, I agree Poyamon is certainly rendered differently. 
everyone who does sin also does lawless or lives lawlessly. So we all sin. Uh, well, let, let me take you down another road. Okay. Okay. You ready? Brace You're yourself the Dr. Here. Bayless. You got to help me out here. <laughs> well, I, I, it's just that, you know, when you read this in the original languages, you know, you do see things. And one of the things is in verse four, three, four, everyone who does, and there's an article there, sin. Now, you say, well, okay, sometimes you translate the article, sometimes you don't. And that's all true. You have to figure out the rules and everything. But the point is in this is the uh, hamartea, uh, te hamartea, the article with uh, sin, only shows up 42 times in the New Testament. Most of them, I think 27 of them, are between Romans uh, 5.12 and uh, 8.3. In other words, every other verse, it has the sin. It doesn't show up elsewhere in uh, in Romans, and it only shows up, I don't know, maybe I got the numbers wrong, but it's only like nine times in the rest of the New Testament, and they're here. Now, what's the sin? Well, the sin is, he'll go on, and he'll talk about the devil has sinned from the beginning. It's a rejection of the revelation, which is ultimately a rejection of Jesus Christ, is the sin here. Okay, and then he's going to talk about the righteousness. It's a singular righteousness with an article in front of it as well, I believe, and I'm kind of winging it here, uh, except in verse 10, it doesn't have the article. And so what he's talking about here when he talks about sin is a rejection of the revelation, which here is a rejection of Jesus Christ. When he talks about, look at, uh, <laughs> I know this is getting heavy, but oh, this is um, great. Three, in 3.10, which is what people use, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil. Now, what he's talking about is way back to Genesis, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, okay, which comes all the way through the text. And he's saying that the one who does not do righteousness, singular, is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So he's saying this imputation, the love of brother. Okay, now what he's saying is when he says does not do righteousness is he's talking about this. How do you do a righteous deed, Michael? If you did anything, would you say, oh, that's a righteous nope, deed that credits flesh. me towards God? No, we not would say no. Yeah. John's saying the only righteous deed you can do is believe in the Son. That's the commandment of 323. Now, let me let me see if I can prove this in context, okay? So he says, uh, does not do righteousness. Now, we usually stop at verse 10, but if you keep going to verse 11, for this is the message we have heard from the beginning. So he's going to prove his doing this righteous deed by going back to Cain and Abel. And he says that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was the evil one. So according to verse 10, he was a child of the devil. And uh, let's see, and slew his brother. Okay, that's the hate of the brother that John's talking about. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. Now, I always ask people, what deed did Cain ever do? Well, it wasn't slaying his brother. He already talked about that. It was his sacrifice. Right. His sacrifice was not according to revelation. It didn't represent Genesis 3.15, death of Messiah. So, so that's where he's a rejecter of the revelation of Messiah. Hmm. So then we go on, and his brother's implication deeds were righteous. I say, okay, what, what deed did uh, Abel ever do? And the only deed Abel ever did was his sacrifice. So Abel's sacrifice is what John referred to in 
in 310 as the righteousness. So what was Abel's sacrifice? Well, it was according to the revelation of the death of Messiah for sin. So therefore, Abel is the first believer in Christ. Uh, not the first, I, probably Adam and Eve did, but um, or it looks like they did. But, but Abel here is his first martyr, let's just say it that way. And Jesus affirms that in both Matthew and Luke, that Abel was the first martyr for Christ. And so this is the righteousness that you do, is you simply copy Abel and trust in Messiah. Now, let me just say one more word. The reason he keeps using these words is he's going against this law-keeping antagonist who keeps using these terms like purify, righteousness, keep commandments. And John says, you're right, but it's always in Christ. Yeah, I appreciate your, your referencing the Sermon on the Mount because I have said this for years too, and it's always nice to have someone who agrees with you. But the whole idea of righteousness being imputed that you've heard it said, but I say to you. And when he yeah. does that tee up, he says, you've heard it said if you commit adultery. I tell you, if you look at her with adultery, you're toast. And so the, the whole passage is putting you back on your heels. There is no righteousness apart from in Absolutely. Christ. All right. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, all right. Unfortunately, uh, our as a prof would say, that's sad banana of a clock. All right. So <laughs> we have to. So, so give us a final comment to wrap up first, John. Uh, very simply, chapter four goes through really this apostolic eyewitness of the crucifixion and the love of brother. 5.1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ kinds of summarizes it up is born of God, and he loves the child of God. In chapter 5 now, he comes out, and again, he repeats it, by the way, 5.5, five, who is one that overcomes the world, but who believes that Jesus is, it's over and over and over again. Um, and the he who has a, a son has the life, who does not have the son does not have the life. Again, big contrast there. And finally, you know, he sums it up. Uh, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What's that well, about? What are yeah. Idols? <laughs> yeah, what are idols? Well, idols are always the gods of your imagination, other than the gods of revelation. And he's saying, stick with the God of the revelation, the God who has a son hmm. who died for you. And stay away from all this other false teaching. Uh, just one thing I'd like to add, particularly in the application. Number, number one is realize who you are in Christ. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard. You are so massively changed in Jesus Christ, and we need to walk in that. Uh, the other thing is beware of this universalism that goes throughout our churches, throughout America, throughout the world. We worship the God who has a son who died for us and was resurrected and is coming back. That's the God we worship. He's made us different. He's made us children of God. And what John is saying, beware that you allow anything to infiltrate your trust in Jesus. They are not children of God. They are children of the devil if they have not trusted in Christ. I know that sounds harsh, but we want to get them from there over to being children of God through evangelism. So I just wanted to say, be careful. Study the apostolic teaching and walk in Jesus Christ and, and with the light of the Father, as the light of the Father. Dr. Charles Bayless, professor of Bible exposition at the Dallas Theological Seminary. Thank you for the, the your insights and, and great research and study on First John. I learned a ton, and I'm glad I'm doing this before I teach it, because that really helps me. 
And you'll hear more with Dr. Bayless on our next broadcast. Thanks for being with us on In Context today. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters. <laughs>